On this Veterans Day, I would just like to say thank you for Ray Snyder's prayer this morning as we think of the many who have sacrificed so that we might enjoy freedom in this country and most of all, the freedom to worship and serve the living God. Uh, Ray served for many years with the uh, Air Force and uh, we are thankful for all who have served and are serving and we want to continue to lift them up in prayer. Let's bow and pray. Lord, you are on your throne and we are told to bow in silence before you. The silence represents surrender. As in wartime, when a prisoner might raise their hands when captured, so we raise our hands and our hearts to you in worship and surrender. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law. We pray in your wonderful matchless name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. In 1983, there were two songwriters who met for lunch in a restaurant in Nashville. Phil McHugh noticed that the waitress seemed rather disturbed. He saw pain in her eyes. And he said to his good friend, uh, Craig Nelson, people need the Lord, don't they? And Greg said, yes, people need the Lord. Well, they spent the rest of that lunch hour sketching out a song that became rather famous in the mid-80s, connected with like the verse in Matthew 9 where Jesus saw the multitudes and was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth labors into that harvest. The first stanza of that song is, is powerful and yet and sad in many ways. Every day they pass me by I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, going who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries that only Jesus hears. And then the refrain says it over and over again. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. But then he says, when will we realize that people need the Lord? Recorded by many, maybe most famously by Steve Green in 1984, it became a Dove Award winner in, in 1986. And I think it was about that time, 87 or 86, that I was first introduced to this tune. You see, in the 80s, I was struggling uh, in a church in Pennsylvania that had a lot of <clears throat> internal division. And in that particular church, it was, it was super, super, let me add one more, super conservative. <laughs> and with regard to music, many of them were convinced that no good music had been written since the 17th century. 
And I kind of came from that perspective, not totally at that time, but. So I, I was invited to a, a banquet. Um, it was a Christian school banquet, and one of the girls from our church, Amy, was going to be singing, and I was told she was going to be singing a popular song that was just awarded uh, a Dove Award, and I thought, oh no, I was not too optimistic. I went, and Amy sang, people need the Lord, and I was smitten. I was convicted of my own hypocrisy, my own bigotry. And that day became a significant move in taking me down a path of grace instead of legalism that I'd known before, a path of grace that I had never known before. And so that song makes a huge change in my, made a change in my own life and still today brings such great memories. It's not so much the music, although the music is great, it's the message. People need the Lord. And that's exactly the message we get from the early verses of Romans chapter nine. Let me encourage you to turn to Romans chapter nine. Now we're coming to a new section in our study in the book of Romans. Chapters 9 through 11 focus much on the nation, nation of Israel. Now that's not a new focus because Paul has been talking about Jew first and then the Gentile and how the Jews have all of these blessings and yet they've rejected the Savior and, and how they are going to undergo a similar condemnation and judgment and he talks about the fact that uh, they need to be circumcised in heart and not just circumcised outwardly it's not just mere ritual it's real true heartfelt religion or relationship with Jesus Christ the Jews have been part of his discussion for a long time but now he's going to focus on them in a unique way I think Warren Wiersbe helps us to outline the next three chapters where he says in chapter nine, you have Israel's past election. In chapter 10, you have Israel's present rejection. And then when we get to Romans chapter 11, sometime in the new millennial, that will be Israel's future restoration. So that's just a helpful uh, way to think of the overall themes of these three particular chapters. But Paul starts out in a very interesting way, and let me just read these verses, and then we're going to come back and look at them uh, in, in a little, uh, at a slower pace. Romans 9 verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. 
You know, we go from the sunshine of chapter eight soon into the gloom and darkness of chapter nine. Someone said uh, the temperature has gone down 20 degrees in this next chapter as we began to deal with some very sad things, in particular the rejection of Israel. But Paul is going to be asking some questions based on Israel's rejection. Questions like this. If Israel's hardness negates the promises of God to them, what about us? Could we lose all the promises that God has offered to us? Paul said we can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the end of chapter 8. But what about Israel? They seem to be separated from the love of God. These are weighty questions. And Paul begins to deal with them, but first through the lens of his own personal emotional agony that his own people have rejected Messiah. So first of all, we see from Paul a passion for others, well displayed, Christ-like, a passion for his own people. That's verse one. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it or bears me witness through the Holy Spirit. And I have to stop right here and say, wait a minute, this sounds unbiblical almost. (laughs) You say, how so? Well, didn't Jesus say to us in Matthew chapter five, all you need to say is simply yes or no? Anything beyond this becomes evil? And James picks up a similar theme in chapter five of his epistle, but of all, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. And some people with their undiscerning crass literalism of the scripture might be taken into court And a question is asked, and they say yes. And the attorney says, would you explain? And they said no. Because the Bible says, my yes is yes, and my no is no. Did you know that crass literalism is often moronic? I'm not talking about understanding the scriptures as they are intended in a proper literal fashion. But Paul says here, let me explain. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I have two witnesses, my own conscience and the Holy Spirit. I mean, he's going to great lengths to let these people know that this is his honest heart. You know why? Because Paul is the Judas of the Jews. Oh, he was their hero. (laughs) And he turned on them. A Benedict Arnold. They hated him. And it seems like everything he was saying was just pushing the Jews off to the side until you read these words. Verse two, I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish uh, anguish in my heart. A confession of deep affection. Paul was justifiably proud of the Greek culture that he lived in and enjoyed, 
often spoke of his Roman citizenship, but the dearest thing to his soul was the fact that he was a Jew. That heritage so dear to his heart. That heritage that is being attacked everywhere today in our world in a vicious way. Oh, that was dear to Paul. And when you know great love for someone, you also experience corresponding deep pain, don't you? If you love your kids, they're going to hurt you. But that doesn't stop you from loving them. Because great love goes through the deep pain. Paul doesn't begin with anger. He begins with sorrow. Great sorrow. And unceasing pain and anguish. Now, he doesn't specifically say he attributes it to Israel, but if you were to go to chapter 10, and by the way, in every one of these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, Paul starts out with a very personal comment about Israel. Here, he's got great pain for them. In chapter 10, he says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is this, that they might be saved. So that's what he's talking about here. That's what brings him the pain. They've rejected Christ. And it seems to be almost unbelievable. It sounds like Psalm 116, or 119, 136. Rivers of water run down my eyes because men do not keep your law. Rivers of, raw, of water run down from my eyes, down my face, because... People have rejected you. Or when it talks about going after those who are lost, I think of Psalm 126, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Concern for those who are outside the fold. Ah, do you remember on Palm Sunday when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and only one gospel writer gives us this account. He stopped about halfway down on the east side of the Mount of Olivet, the west side of the Mount of Olivets, going into, from the east into the city of Jerusalem. He stopped and he cried, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often would I have gathered you together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, what's the rest of it? You would not. Israel rejected him. Someone has said evangelism is the sob of God. And Paul is Christ-like when he weeps for the lost of his own people. I find it interesting that Paul doesn't cut ties with his own people. <laughs> I've heard of a lot of Christians doing that. They come to faith in Christ and, and their family, they don't follow. In fact, they make fun of him, the, the new believer, and they ridicule him. And so that believer just cuts the family off. Good riddance. That, my friend, is not Christ-like. For Paul weeps for his own, the natural connection with his dear family. But he weeps because they have rejected the one who came to save. 
And how sad is that? They don't even understand. But then Paul gives us a staggering statement here when he talks about his passion for others. Verse three, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, that they might be saved. My people, my own race, the people of Israel, first part of verse four. 70 times, at least, in the epistles, Paul talks about being in Christ. That's his favorite formula for describing a real believer. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And now he says, I'm willing to be cut off from Christ. I'm willing to turn my back on the first eight chapters of Romans so that my loved ones could be saved. Now, this is hypothetical. It's unbelievable for him to say that. I don't know that I could say that. Could you? The the word here is cursed, anathema. And it means to be devoted to destruction. It was used in the Old Testament, for instance, like Jericho. Here's a heathen city. And when Joshua and the troops came in, they were to gather everything, not keep any of the spoils for themselves, but to devote everything to destruction. Pure judgment, anathema. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 16. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be anathema. Cursed of God, abandoned from his grace, banished from his family. That's very Christ-like, Paul, because, you know, I remember in Galatians 3 that Jesus was cursed for us. Quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, for it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And what happened when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of humanity, he was, from God's viewpoint, anathema, banished cut off. Why have you forsaken me? I'll tell you why. Jesus became sin for us. And a holy God turned his back on his son. Thankfully, the father accepted the offering of the savior. Jesus was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand and is no longer anathema. He took the curse for us so that we would not be cursed. But reject Jesus and you are under God's anathema. He was burdened because these were his people and he was burdened because these were God's people. And Paul shows us that the one who would go after sinners to save them must love the sinners they want to save. And we have been too weak as a church in this category. And I include I myself. Sometimes we want to stand at a great distance from the sin that repels us. And the wickedness around us. And we don't want to get dirty. But that's where the lost people are. And that's where we have to go. Sometimes in the dirt and grime of the world. 
if we're going to bring people to Christ. Paul felt what God felt. And we need to feel what Paul felt. People need the Lord. And we ought to do whatever we can by God's grace to win them. Now here's the thing that makes their rejection so incredible. All of the privileges that were given to the nation of Israel. And he starts mentioning them in verse four. There's a list. First of all, they're called Israel. They were given that name when Jacob was wrestling with the angel. You'll no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, a prince of God. And it's a noble name for the people of God. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 32, when the nation of Israel had turned away from the Lord, is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father? Your creator, the one who made you and formed you. A unique relationship. The word adoption speaks of this. Moses, speaking on God's behalf, said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. In the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, it tells us when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. The national election of Israel, not individual, but a national election, caused them to be adopted as the people of God. And to them was given the experience of the Exodus and the glory cloud. Theirs was the divine glory, the Shekinah glory cloud that traveled with them wherever they went I've often found myself saying, you know, it would really be a lot easier to follow the Lord if I had a Shekinah glory cloud, right? Whenever the cloud picked up, it was time to break camp. And when the cloud moved, you followed it. <laughs> and when the cloud stopped, you settled. I, wouldn't that be great? And the Lord says, I've given you a Shekinah glory cloud. For the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Shekinah cloud has been shining on us in the person of Christ through the pages of the Scripture. And we are to follow that cloud. But Israel received the cloud. They received the covenants. Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. Mosaic covenant given in the Ten Commandments. But prior to that, a few chapters and, and further on in the book of Exodus, the Davidic covenant of a coming king in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And by the way, Jesus fulfills all of those. It's so exciting. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that through you, Abraham, I will bless all the world. And the book of Galatians says that's Jesus. The Mosaic covenant was given to us with the promise that a prophet will come who's better than you, Moses. That's Exodus 18, 18. And then, of course, the Davidic covenant is all about Messiah sitting on the throne and Jesus fulfills that. 
Oh, how blessed Israel was. They were given the law. They had the temple worship, the ceremonial laws given to them about cleansing and sacrifice and priests and all of that well described in the book of Hebrews chapter nine that we went through not too long ago. They had the promises, not the covenants, but primarily the messianic promises that talked about a coming king who would rule in righteousness. Look at verse five, theirs are the patriarchs. Not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also David, and Moses, and Joseph, and Samuel, these spiritual leaders that kept them going uh, in the word of God and following the path and will of God. But notice verse five says, and from them, the patriarchs, is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. (laughs) They've got a lot of things, the covenants, the promises, the law, the name, the adoption, the temple worship, but you know what else they have? They have Messiah. In fact, everything else was given to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And they rejected him. From the patriarchs is traced the human ancestry of Jesus, verse 5 says. Well, that's exactly what Paul said when he started writing the book. In Romans, I'm a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, traced from the patriarchs. But through the spirit of holiness was appointed as the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. I'm talking about Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the way the book starts. And Paul now is just reflecting back to that wonderful passage. But the last part of verse five is an interesting verse and it is a verse of a little bit of controversy. (laughs) One scholar, theologian, James Edwards, says the punctuation in verse five is a minefield. And that's because there is no punctuation. So how can there be no punctuation? Well, that's the way the Greek would write and you had to understand by the context what was being said. So there's a couple possibilities here without getting overly technical. The first possibility is that if the period or a comma is following the name of Christ, then everything here refers to Christ. So of the Messiah, comma, the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised, amen. And that's the way the NIV translates it. However, since there is no punctuation, some people put a full stop, period, semicolon, after Messiah, So it talks about that his ancestry is traced, the ancestry of the Messiah, period. And starts a new sentence, God who is over all is to be praised forever. Now you say, well, which one is right? They're both true, so it's not a bad controversy. But it appears that in Jewish doxologies, the word praise customarily was placed before the word God. Customarily, as in almost always. 
And the traditional view of the Greek fathers is what we see in the NIV translation. That is, there is a comma after the the word Messiah, meaning that Messiah is God over all, and he is to be blessed forever. The scoffers say, well, nowhere in the Bible is Jesus called God. (laughs) And I would say, oh, really? John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word That's pretty good. Verse 14, if you don't know who the word is, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Or how about what we read in Philippians chapter two that simply tells us, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not think equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself of nothing and came to this earth. Or what we see in Hebrews chapter one about Jesus Christ being the exact representation of the essence of the Father. Or Colossians chapter two, for in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Or we could go on and on. So I just want to say, not being a Greek scholar, I love the translation of the NIV, which makes this one of the greatest statements about the deity of Christ in all of the Bible. Through the patriarchs, you can trace the human ancestry of the Messiah, comma, who is God over all and is to be praised forevermore. And that's why people need the Lord. That's why it's unthinkable that you would reject him. The one who loved you so much, he came to die in your place. This is an impressive list of religious privileges for the nation of Israel. But it only serves to magnify the tragedy of their rejection. And to you who have heard of Christ over and over and over, to whom much is given, much is required. You've grown up in a Christian family, for the most part, maybe a nation that talked about God, used to. That's what you grew up in. You know the Bible, it's bored you to death. You've heard the stories, you know them all. And you've rejected him? That makes no sense. Paul loves Israel because they're his people because they're God's people and because they're lost people, so should we. Steve Green grew up as the son of missionary parents, but his own testimony says he was living a hypocritical life, doing all the right things for the wrong motives. But one day God got hold of his heart And he desperately fled to the Savior and got things right and began to serve the Lord. And it wasn't long after that that someone pitched a song to him called People Need the Lord. And he decided to record it for two reasons, he says. It resonated with me because my parents spent their life going around the world telling people who had never heard about Jesus that they needed the Lord and that God loves them. He said, secondly, I gravitated to this song because I realized that there are many people who have heard about Christ 
who need him as well. Like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son, they've not run far away from home, but they're still lost. Steve says, that was me. Surrounded by people just like me who are living a fake Christianity and fit in with the crowd, but they don't know the Lord. Those people need the Lord. Some of you here today need the Lord. Got to stop playing the game. Turn from your sin in your heart and call upon Jesus to save you right now. What a tragedy for you to hear the gospel over and over and say no to Christ. Christians, we are called to take his life to a world where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through his love, our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life that only we can share. When will we realize that people need the Lord? Heavenly Father, our hearts are raw. For this portion of scripture that upholds the mighty apostle with his dear compassion for the lost, when used as a mirror, often shows our lack of concern for the lost. But Lord, I pray today that our hearts would be turned toward compassion, just like Jesus. And Lord, for those who may be here who have never trusted Christ, you know who they are. Many of them know who they are. Today, Lord, I hope that you've placed your hand upon them in conviction. May they pray right now, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. I turn from my sin, and by faith, I trust the Lord Jesus. May you do so today. Amen.